much for being here with us today. I'm Lindsay Jordan, and this is Fundraising Masterclass. And today, we're going to tackle one of my favorite topics. We're going to take a deep dive into capital campaigns and discuss the feasibility of a feasibility study. We have a couple of incredible guests with us who have all completed capital campaigns, some with a feasibility study, some without a feasibility study. Uh, And they are going to share their expertise with us, kind of walk us through um, uh, their experience, some of um, the highlights and, and some of the things that they learned. But of course, as usual, before we jump into our panel discussion, Um, I want to make sure everybody is on the same page. Everybody has the same understanding of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, And we have some kind of shared language. So really quickly, let me jump this over into presentation mode. Let's discuss quickly what exactly a feasibility study is. So for those of you who are new to feasibility studies, Um, They don't just happen in the nonprofit sector. They happen in almost every sector, and they are associated with figuring out whether or not a project is viable or is going to be successful. Here we have the standard definition across all sectors of what a feasibility study is, and that it is just an analysis that looks at a lot of different key factors and helps determine the likelihood of something succeeding. In the nonprofit world, we look at the feasibility study for some very specific things. So these critical aspects are what we're looking at in the feasibility study. Typically, a feasibility study is going to look at how much money is available in the market to be raised and how likely donors are to prioritize your project over other projects that are happening. It's also going to look at how familiar donors are with your mission and what they think about your programming. Um, Here at Right on Fundraising, we tend to look at uh, both the value proposition and the effectiveness when we're talking to donors about how they view your mission and your programs. Uh, We're also going to ask them for feedback about what do they think about your leadership? That includes your staff leadership and your board leadership. And then lastly, we're going to present to them the message of the campaign, your why this particular campaign, why this moment in time, you know, uh, what is the urgency around your campaign, as well as what we call pro forma information. Pro forma information is frankly like the like not sexy part of the capital campaign. This is uh, the cost per square foot, uh, how many parking spaces are you going to have? You know, really the the nuts and bolts that a lot of folks kind of want to take a deeper dive into so that they truly and fully understand what your project is going to look like. So general pros, general good things about the feasibility study. Typically, uh, a feasibility study is going to help build some early visibility for the campaign if you don't have any. Um, you're going to walk away from the feasibility study with some fundraising information to start your campaign. So for example, who your early donors might be, what your lead gift might be, um, how much money you think you can actually raise from your current um, core donor base. You're gonna get objective outside perspective from a consultant who is typically familiar with the landscape that you're fundraising in. Um, Frequently, the feasibility study actually opens up doors to other conversations with donors or creates opportunities for new relationships, new partnerships. And it is a significant time saving for staff and board members um, because most feasibility studies are conducted by a third party. 
It does not mean there are not cons to the feasibility study. The feasibility study or what we call the planning phase of the campaign is typically the most expensive piece of the campaign. It's got a big price tag that comes along with it. And you can be assured that all consultants, no matter what, are going to bring their own biases into the process in their own donor relationships. When a donor is talking to your consultant, they're not just talking to the consultant about your project. They're also talking to someone they have a relationship with, someone who they know. And sometimes that does come into play. Um, and sometimes a campaign that has spent years um, building a constituency, working with local leaders and politicians, they've already built up a lot of social capital that happens during the feasibility study. So for them, um, they already kind of have the visibility and trust that would be needed, and, and a feasibility study might not be a best fit for them. So all of that said, what kind of campaigns are the best fit for a feasibility study. We have some experts here to chat with us today, and I'm going to turn it over to Jonathan Weber-Mendez, our co-host today, to introduce these folks, and then we're going to dive in uh, and get started. Go ahead, Jonathan. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay. So um, it is Rydon's great pleasure to introduce our esteemed uh, panel of experts and guests. Um, first, I'd like to introduce Janice Barron. She is the Development Manager of National Expansion for the Veterans Community Project. Um, she has a social work background, significant nonprofit management, um, and some experience in corporate social responsibility that led her to, as she defines, her dream job at Veterans Community Project. Uh, Janice is responsible for managing growth into expansion locations around the United States. She secures new donor relationships. Um, and in, inclusive design and implementation of the plan for raising funds for veteran community project as it begins its growth within each new community. So welcome Janice to Masterclass. Um, next, I want to introduce Margaret Creighton. She is the president and CEO at Positive Tomorrows. Oklahoma's only elementary school specifically serving children's and families that are experiencing homelessness. She received her bachelor's degree in dance management from Oklahoma City University in 2002, and then her MBA from Oklahoma City University in 2006. She was hired as the development director at Positive Tomorrows in 2013 and was promoted to executive vice president in 2020, and then president and CEO in 2022. During her tenure, tenure at Positive Tomorrows, the operating budget has more than quadrupled and as has the number of students served annually. In 2023, Margaret was named one of the Journal Record's most admired CEOs. Margaret was also named one of the Journal's records achievers under 40 okc gazettes 40 under 40 and okc friday's most powerful young professional um so welcome margaret so happy to have you here 
And last but certainly not least, I want to introduce Mora Guten. Mora is the president and chief executive officer of the Child Abuse Network, a local nonprofit here in Tulsa that provides collaborative services to child abuse victims and their families. Uh, Mora has worked in the nonprofit sector for more than 15 years and previously served as the executive director for Tulsa Court Appointed Special Advocates. She graduated here in Tulsa from Bishop Kelly High School and the University of Tulsa, go Golden Hurricanes. Um, she began her career as a social worker in the inner city St. Louis and has worked extensively with at-risk children, individuals with disabilities, and survivors of sexual assault, uh, and just completed a wildly successful capital campaign. So very Ooh. happy to have Maura here. Um, Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you, ladies, for being with us. I'm super excited to dive in today. <clears throat> and to that extent, I'm actually going to switch away from our screen so that we can see your, your beautiful faces. And um, I want to begin this morning by just kind of giving folks a general idea of your capital campaigns. And I'm actually going to go in reverse order. We'll start with you, Maura. I'd like for you to tell us just a little bit about the capital campaign, what you were raising money for initially, what was your goal, and maybe what were your first concerns about the capital campaign? Oh, girl, that's a loaded question. Well, so our center is the hub of child abuse investigations in the community. Um, really, every community within the U.S. and abroad has a, a center kind of similar to ours, whether it's under a like a police branch or a prosecution team. Um, for us, it's it's owned and housed by a community partnership of private and public individuals um, and foundations. And we needed a new facility. Ours is the um, one of the first children's advocacy centers in the world. We were number 13. Um, we were the first in Oklahoma and, and many centers um, around the U.S. and even into Canada. Um, we've got there's seven centers in Israel that were really designed after CAN's model. Um, the problem being that our center is uh, 35 years old and a lot, we've learned a lot about childhood trauma and things since that time and uh, best practice and investigation, but the center, the, uh, the design of it really was not lending itself to growth or expansion. Um, and as we know, Oklahoma is number one in childhood, um, adverse childhood experiences. So we see a lot of cases, um, over 2000 kids come through the center every year, plus all of their family members and collateral witnesses and all the professionals that need to work with that family. So we needed a new center and we needed it like 20 years ago. Um, we tried to do a capital campaign in the past prior to my arrival. Um, we, we laugh about, you know, how hard it's been to get this bird in the air. And um, there were feasibility studies done with those um, campaigns. And if I'm being honest, I, I don't think we took the feedback to heart. And so we kept trying to fly the plane the same way. Um, so we were really apprehensive this time about doing one. We even had a funder say, no more feasibility studies from Ken. So um, I was like, maybe don't go to her. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we needed to raise um, almost $9 million to um, 
to move up, to grow up from uh, about 10,000 square feet to 35,000 square feet. Um, We are just probably about a hundred days from substantial completion on our project. We're, we're more than halfway there. Um, And we ended up raising uh, over uh, almost $11 million. So um, there was great timing because we did all this during a pandemic. And um, if you hear noise at my house, it's some wood flooring being installed. Um, And so even just personally going through this process, I realized how how costs have changed and it's been um, a really intricate dance with the timing of everything. Um, So my early concerns honestly were what feedback we were going to get. And so it was a hard thing as a leader to kind of lean in. So Maura, I'm really curious hearing how uh, the campaign was set up and some of those concerns. Um, How did it turn out? Uh, Did, did you reach your goal? Um, did it take the amount of time you thought it would? It was interesting. I'd never done one before. I've never done a capital campaign before. I'll never do it again. Um, this is my swan song, but it's been a great experience. Um, like I said, I was a little bit nervous. I was a little scared. Um, Lindsay had even discussed what kinds of questions are asked of these individuals that they go to, these stakeholders. And so it's vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable process, but that's how you grow. And so the growth from it has expanded beyond just our capital and into our programming and our service provision. Um, the part I was scared about was negative feedback. And I'm sure we got some feedback that probably wasn't great, but honestly, nothing felt yucky. It all was very intentional it was very thoughtful. It was coming from our biggest stakeholders and funders and people in the community whose opinions I value and trust. So even the the parts uh, where growth um, was maybe recommended, it was wonderful feedback. And we've been able to implement that and, and really have a great experience from it. That's awesome. Thank you, Maura. Um, let's jump over to Margaret now and learn a little bit about Positive Tomorrow's campaign. So same questions to you, Margaret. Tell us a little bit about the campaign and you know, what were your initial fears about going into the feasibility study? Yeah. So um, we were at the time uh, in a building that was about 8,000 square feet. And it was a small um, attachment to a church that um, we saw getting ready to merge with another congregation. And so we were going to be homeless ourselves. So when you, um, you know, you've got a school that you're serving families experiencing homelessness, and then you're essentially having to face, um, do we buy the property that we're we're on right now from the church that's here? Do we build a new building? Um, We're turning away almost twice as many kids as we're serving every year. Um, so what, do, what do those next steps need to look like? Um, so we were sort of shoved into a capital campaign, um, out of necessity. So, uh, we did end up, um, it was total, a, a $15 million project that changed multiple times. Uh, it was a little bit of a moving target, but, um, once we got going, um, and started to see some success, then the goal kind of kept growing. Um, so 
For me, um, main worries were, of course, what does the economy look like, right? In Oklahoma, I think that's always a concern of um, how's the oil market doing? And that's what a lot of the, some of the feedback that we got at that point in time, it was 2017. Um, a little bit earlier when we were doing the study, it was about 2014 when we did the study, 15, and then um, really started to ramp up in 16, 17 for the actual fundraising. And then completed the building in December of 2019 is when we moved in. So the project ended up being a 42,000 square feet um, building. And sorry, my light just went off. I'm not moving around enough in here. Um, so 42,000 square foot building um, that you know gives us a lot more room. We can serve 210 kids in this building. Um, we can serve kiddos birth through eighth grade is the um, eventual goal. And we're growing um, classroom by classroom as we get the sustainable funding to do that. Um, but we're serving more whole families. And that was, you know, we don't want to turn kids away. We want to serve whole families. Um, so that was that was the goal. Um, we did meet our goal. Um, they, you know, there was some feedback in the beginning. Um, like Maura was saying, that's, you know, it's it's a little bit, okay, that's showing me how I need to change the way that I'm talking about what we're doing um, and shows me what I need to bring to the front of conversations um, rather than waiting for people to ask those questions. I was able to walk in prepared with all the data that um, someone was going to want to see. So did I miss anything? I think you got it all. Okay. Jonathan, did she miss anything? No, but I but I was curious too. Um, not the exact same question to Maura, but I mean, starting the feasibility study in 2014, finally having the building in 2019, was that the timeline that you had originally had in mind or or how did that work out? So I think we needed to take a little time. I mean, there's some of the things that we heard from the feasibility study that were um, we needed more data points. So there's a lot of anecdotal um, information that we could bring to the table, but we needed some hard data. So um, we did some other um, assessments that looked at the the impact that our school was making, um, not only with the kids that we're serving, but also with the parents. And um, that made a huge difference um, for the, the funders and what they were looking for. So, um, I mean, I, I think that it, it brings to light the things that you might be nervous about talking about. Um, but once it's there in front of you, um, you know, it's it's time to address those things. It's only going to make you more successful if you're answering the proper questions. Right. That makes total sense. Awesome. Thank you, Margaret. All right, Janice. And this is so Janice's organization is super cool, which is one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to Janice today, um, because Janice, as in her role as director of national expansion, uh, it, Veterans Community Project expands all over the place. So you have multiple capital campaigns, Correct. multiple plates spinning at the same time. So talk to us a little bit, same question. How are you, I, so not to bury the lead, Veterans Community Project <laughs> really doesn't lean on feasibility studies and yet you're expanding all over the place. So walk us through what that typically looks like at VCP and, and same question, please um, tell our audience about who you're serving, why you're serving and why it's important that you're expanding. Perfect. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how do I wrap my answer around the question because we do have multiple capital campaigns constantly going on and that's not going to stop anywhere in the near future. So while that is extremely challenging um, in an organization where we don't accept federal funds and grant dollars um, to, to do the work that we do, because that will limit and restrict who and how we serve, 
um, it's a unique challenge. And I can speak specifically to six of our capital campaigns and none of them are the same. They are all very unique and different depending on the community that we're growing into. So um, with, without kind of saying that we are, we're not against feasibility studies by any means. We know there is value in feasibility studies. Um, I've worked at organizations where we have done those. Um, so I personally am pro feasibility studies, but from an organizational perspective at VCP, um, we do a lot of legwork on the back end before we even choose our next community that we're going into, right? So we do our own analysis, if you will, and there's five different things we're looking at before we even choose our next location that we grow into. Um, and before I even go into the, what those five things are, um, unfortunately, what we know as an organization is the need for the work that we do unfortunately, is in every single community in the U.S., right? Um, we serve homeless veterans. It is an issue in every community. There's a lot of incredible veterans organizations out there in every community, but there's a lot of those veterans that fall through the gaps, that don't have access to VA benefits for one reason or another. That's something as a civilian I didn't know before I started working with this organization personally. Um you know, a lot of our brothers and sisters that raise the right hand to serve may have an other than honorable discharge status, a dishonorable discharge status, and that means they don't qualify for VA benefits. And that's a lot of those individuals we're seeing on the streets. And so we know that's an issue in every single community. So we're, we literally have over 4,000 communities that have reached out to us and said, we need you here, right? So I don't want to say that feasibility studies are wrong. These are communities that say, come here, please, right? So we know we're going to make it. And that may make the capital campaign a little bit harder in that community. But we know that we have to find the dollars to do it. A lot of times we're trying to get those dollars locally within that community because those dollars stay in that community. Um, but if it means that we have to lean on some of our national partners or national organizations to kind of get us that umbrella funding or seed funding, if you will, to start exploring those conversations, to find those donors and to hire incredible consultants like Right on Fundraising in those communities to help us um, get in front of those folks, that's where we start. So before we do say yes to a city again, we can't be everywhere like we want to be. Uh, we know we need to be everywhere and we're going to get there, right? Our goal is to end veteran homelessness. So we're going to do that. Um, it takes time. But what we look at first is um, who there is at that municipal level that's going to be our champion, right? Who really is the one that's saying we want you here? Because there's so many do-getters that reach out and say, we need you here. How can we do this? And that's great. But we know what it's going to take is getting that municipal support. So is it the mayor, the senator, right? Some of your city planners, those that are going to help us um, work our way into that community a little bit faster and cut through that red tape. Those are going to be the first people we're going to lean on. So we start those conversations way early. Um, then we need to identify land, right? Property is a big place for us to build. What we do is we build tiny home villages. You can probably see one of the cute little little guys behind me. We build tiny homes for homeless veterans. Um, it has a community center that we build on site as well that provides their complete wraparound support services with case management, et cetera. And then we have an outreach center as well where we serve walk-in veterans with any of those emergency assistant needs. Um, so land is crucial um, and location of that land is actually really important, right? We wanna be within the city limits to serve those veterans where their need is. Um, and that poses several other challenges on the land side um, as well, because when you're going into larger communities, land isn't always necessarily easy to get. So that's something that's crucial in that early stage. 
Um, we look at gaps in services. We know there's tons of gaps in services, but what is it in this landscape when we're going to a new location, a new market, right? There's incredible veterans organizations out there. We're not trying to replicate it. We're not trying to go in there and do the same thing that someone's already doing. That's fantastic. You keep doing it. What are you not able to do? Who are the veterans you're turning away? That's where we're going to find our gap in services. And that's when we're going to figure out how do we manipulate the needs of this community so every village we build really is very different. We're going to make sure we're serving the needs of that specific community. So we're looking at that early on as well. And then last but not least, well, local champion kind of goes along with the municipal champion. So, you know, in Oklahoma City, the reason we chose Oklahoma City as one of our next locations is Nick Collison, right? He's he's our local champion. He's the one. Yes. I hope y'all Oklahomans are snapping your fingers that we love him. He was our first seed funder of our Oklahoma City project. He had been to our village in Kansas City, toured it, and said, we want you here. So he really helped us get connected there to the municipal support, gave us the funds to get the conversation going. So that local champion truly is huge in each market that we go to, um, but then the philanthropic support, right? Again, as the development person at the table for each community we grow into, we have to have the dollars there. And while I understand the feasibility study tells us, you know, how and where we can get those dollars, um, we're already starting some of those conversations earlier on. And really, time is very valuable to us as an organization. We know we're going to go to that market already. So it, it's almost like we don't want to say, you know, we know we're feasible, right? We are, uh, unfortunately. It's it's a reason that we exist. Um, but we're going to find those dollars whatever way we have to, even if there might be someone that would turn around and, turn around and say, oh, well, we're not sure that's something we'd pay for. That's okay. Um, we, we know we're still going to find our way uh, through those, those gaps while we're there. So that's kind of a long-winded way of that. We have multiple no, capital great. campaigns going on right now. Uh, Oklahoma City is one of them. Uh, Milwaukee is is where our newest uh, location is, as well as our two newest. Um, our completed capital campaigns are Kansas City. We are literally 99% to our goal in Longmont, Colorado. Um, Sioux Falls is at about 70% of their capital campaign, South Dakota. Um, and we're just about 60% at our St. Louis location as well. So, I think what's fascinating there, Janice, and kind of what you outlined is how you approach a capital campaign is... Um, it's a scaling strategic plan, basically. I mean, it really is a plan for how to scale the entire model in different communities based on what those needs are, which is really fascinating um, and definitely speaks to why a, a traditional feasibility study might not be a great fit in every community that you serve, which actually kind of leads me into our next question. And so we'll just um, go in reverse order again, Janice, since I've got you. Um, Talk to me a little bit about in these communities. So um, from working with VCP, I have a little bit of an insider's view. So I know you have a committee in each, <laughs> in each community that you're working with. Um, excuse me. So inevitably, someone on this committee is going to bring up a feasibility study, right, in, in different communities. So how have you gone about in the past determining which communities might benefit, which not, and how do you uh, make those decisions with your, your local volunteers? Yeah, good question. So as you mentioned, we, we do our, our initial groundwork, legwork, right? We get the seed funding started. We, we start some early donor conversations, and then we uh, poke some individuals in that local community to start a capital campaign committee. So that's really the quiet phase of the work that we do. 
um, is rallying up all that attention and awareness behind the scenes before we start to do something like an active press release and really let the broader community know that we're coming there. Um, You know, it's only come up a couple of times in, in our capital campaign committee conversations of, have you done a feasibility study? Um, and, you know, whether it's our founders, you know, that are combat vets themselves that started this organization as saying yes first, um, that's that's who we are, right? We, we're going to figure out the BS. <laughs> so if that means that we're jumping into something very quickly and very, you know, very vastly without going through and doing that study, we can very easily say that we've already had a lot of those conversations within the community beforehand. So a lot of the things you're going to find in a feasibility study, we've already kind of put our hands in. Um, So we haven't done a formal study, but we've already made a significant amount of those conversations happen. Um, So we really haven't had to combat it too much. Um, And if they are serving on that capital campaign, they usually are on the same page with you're here because you need to be here and we want to be a part of the solution, not the problem. Um, and so it's really not too much that we have to battle when it comes to why we haven't performed a feasibility study before we start these campaigns. Very nice. Um, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, I, you know, it, this does sound like a, a really unique approach that fits your scaling model really well. And while it's not like a formalized feasibility study, it seems that you're doing a lot of like learning, community-centric learning as you go. Um, does Do you think that requires a little more flexibility in your growth in each different community? Do you find that you are sometimes having to adjust timelines or fundraising goals or, and how do you go about sort of shifting on the run? Yes, yes, and yes. We are so flexible. Um, and I know Lindsay can probably giggle as I say this, like we are ever changing in each community that we're coming to. Like I said, no, no two capital campaigns have looked the same yet in each community. Um, and we do have to be flexible. And, you know, as a national organization, I would say we're still new in the national space. So we really are building the playbook as we go, right? And so we are, we have made so many changes in each community that we've gone into where it makes me look at the next places differently, right? So Oklahoma City is a fantastic example. We've purchased our land. Um, it's right by the Capitol, right? And the, that location is perfect for the work we're doing. We've already got that project up and going. We're getting ready to launch that capital campaign. And then all of a sudden the neighborhood decided, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is what we want in our backyard, right? So we've had to really pause have those conversations with a neighborhood, with the planning and zoning commission and take a step back. That's not something you could have ever planned. So that's made me look at our next Milwaukee location where we're already embedded in the community, having those neighborhood association meetings um, ahead of time so we don't run into these types of issues in the future. So it absolutely changes. We, we change on the fly at any given moment. I mean, we meet as a team every single Monday to talk about each location, where we're at, where we're stuck. Um, what can we do as an organization, whether we have to engage leadership or the board to to keep pushing things forward in each community. But there are always things we could have never anticipated um, in each community that we're coming in. And we just have to just push through, right? Um, We got some PR uh, in the Oklahoma side and we're not even a public phase of fundraising there yet, right? So what we thought would be a potentially negative thing by the neighborhood saying, we don't want you there, what it actually turned into is something amazing. And there's so many other neighborhoods that say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we want you here. So um, it ended up being a good thing in the long run. And, And I think once people truly take a step back, if we could bring everyone to Kansas City, the village to see 
what we really do here, it makes such a tremendous difference, right? When you look at the work as it's being done, as opposed to having that narrow view of, wait, homeless veterans, they probably have a lot of mental health issues. I don't want that here in my neighborhood, but you're not looking at the work that we do and how we do it. Um, so yeah, we pivot regularly, uh, weekly sometimes. Um, phases have changed for construction. Phases have changed for um, fundraising. You know, We used to have a massive capital campaign. I'll use the first three cities, St. Louis, Longmont, and Sioux Falls as our example there. We've got a big capital campaign anywhere from 4.5 million to 10 million. And we took it upon ourselves um, as the headquarters location to do all the fundraising for it, whereas that's not our approach anymore, right? We are now phasing it out where my team's responsibility is the first 50% of that goal. Then we hire locally and we put the rest of the construction phase two um, on the local community to turn around and finish that capital campaign. So that gets us into the new cities to, to expedite our growth a little bit faster. So, yeah, we pivot and change regularly. And, and that strategy could change in six months from now, for all I know. But we absolutely that's the only way we can function is by by working through that change and pushing through it. So that's really interesting, uh, specifically because we're talking, Janice, about this kind of multi-state national approach. Margaret, I'm interested, same question to you. Um, who was the first to bring up the feasibility study? Was it a staff member, or a board member, or a consultant? And what were the early conversations about whether or not your organization should do one? You said you, you were really kind of shoved into the capital campaigns. Mm -hmm. I imagine timing was kind of a, a, a big issue right there at the beginning. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, and I think to really understand um, where we were at that decision-making point, you have to go back a little bit. So Positive Tomorrows, at the time that we started to do this, had been around for 25 years. Um, also in that, uh, we'd gone through with some legislation that happened that was the No Child Left Behind Act. And that mandated that you could not segregate children based on homelessness, which is exactly what we do. Um, so we, we, you know, we don't believe that it's uh, to their detriment. We think it's uh, to help, help them. Um, but we were at the time uh, before that happened, we were part of the public school system. And so there was public funding that went along with that. And then we had the nonprofit side of things that did the case management um, and provided break camps and after school program and all of that. When that passed, um, it immediately removed all of the education from our program. When that happened, there was a key funder in our city that said positive to Mars will fold. Um, oh they gosh. will not. Um, they're not going to succeed. And they just sort of. Um, communicated that to other funders. So um, we also had another funder who stepped up and said, this is really important. And I'm going to make a five-year pledge that ensured that we stayed around. So there was some um, hesitancy in some of the fundraising landscape that uh, we weren't sustainable. So for us, I think it was more um, proof right, that we could do this and that there was um, some confidence behind what we were going to do because the board at that time, um, again, was hesitant of what is our next step and what does that need to be? And so um, I'm happy to say that that funder came back and said, hey, I was wrong um, and I'm going to help you make sure that this campaign is successful. So it helped us to gain a fan along the way. Um, I also think you have to look at the maturity of the organization and size and also the, 
maturity of those who are in the fundraising seats, right? So um, I'm talking about myself. So this was my first capital campaign and it was my first, um, and I I felt like I needed some support there. And uh, I was my boss's first at the time, my predecessor, it was her first campaign as well. And so this gave us peace of mind that we had all of our ducks in a row because when you've got, when you go out so boldly with a campaign, you don't want to miss the mark um, because that again adds to your reputation risk within the community. So um, it was, I think it was, um, you know, me and my predecessor that uh, are the ones that first brought it up as something that was really important for first steps. Um, but the board was completely um, on board with hiring um, a consultant for that. So great. Um, so, you know, you you've mentioned that like. You didn't you didn't want to mess it up. It was your first campaign. Earlier, you mentioned some data points that mm-hmm. you, you know, really specifically wanted to obtain. Mm-hmm. Um, can you sort of shed some light a little more on what those pieces of the study you were trying to learn, what that information, those data points you were trying to get from the feasibility study specifically were? Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think from the study, what we were wanting to learn is how do we think we tell our story well, um, but what are people really wanting to see from us and wanting to hear from us? So um, when you're working with students experiencing homelessness, our classroom dynamics change daily, um, and that's hard for teachers. That's hard to make progress if a child doesn't come to school every day. Um, So uh, that can be a really hard thing to measure for our friends and for our friends that are years behind academically, if we were to be, um, a a lot of the question was, um, why aren't they a charter school? And charter school just doesn't work for us because we would always be a failing school. Plus again, the federal legislation around segregating children based on homelessness, we would have to accept children who were not homeless if they wanted to come to our school. So there were some regulations around that. Um, so we ended up putting together a one-sheeter um, that just essentially told people why uh, we weren't a charter school. We also needed to show growth with kids. But when you look at growth based on a national norm, our kids are never going to be where the national norms are. So we don't show point in time testing, we show growth with our testing. So the data points that we were looking for were just, again, how do you, in a in a space that's very norm-based, how do you show something different um, that shows the real reality of what we're doing um, and not just a, a point in time? That's fascinating. Um, well, To follow up with that really quickly, how did you determine that that was the specific tool that was going to help you get your message across? What was the pain point or the pushback that you were receiving from community or donors that made you realize, oh, this is a message that we need to be more clear about? I mean, I think people were just really asking, you know, how how much growth has there been? Are they are they reading on grade level? Um, what's your percentage of children that pass the third grade reading test? Um, we don't do the, the third grade reading test here because our kids are so far behind. Um, so it's really how much can we catch them up in that amount of time? How much can we stabilize their housing? Um, if they're with us for three months or more, um, what can we do in that amount of time? Um, how, how stable can we get their family? What does attendance look like for kids? So we pivot, uh, like Janice was saying, we pivot every single day here uh, to get kids to school. 
So if you can't get kids to, to school, you can't serve them. And transportation is always and will always be the hardest thing that we do because it changes from morning to afternoon, overnight, over the weekend. It always changes. So um, finding out the right measurements to show growth, but again, not shying away from those hard numbers, right? I mean, right. it's the reality of what we do that our kids are really far behind. Um, so I think that there's there was growth in um, having a study done that showed more than just numbers um, and then also just tell, telling the story in a different way. Thank you for sharing that, Morgan. I think that the education component, it's fascinating to me that there was so much education that had to be done within the donor community to get people. Because what I hear you saying is, well, they were asking questions of us as if we were X, as if we were the status quo and not understanding that really what we do is very unique. And um, and that required this huge educational lift. That's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, did you have something before we well, move? I just have to add, I just love how centered the people you serve are mm -hmm. in your storytelling, in your measurements, how you're really thinking about that and bringing that to the donor. It's not about the needs of positive tomorrows, but it's about those people you serve, those communities you serve. And I, I just love how centered the community was in that discussion. And I think Janice brought that up when she was talking about moving into their communities and 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 veterans and their needs. And I know that CAN is also so community centric in how they have developed and grown. So I just love to see that from the panel, so much focus on the communities that are served and not on the growth of the organization just for the mm -hmm. sake of growth. Yeah, and beautiful through line. Um, so Maura, I'm going to turn this over to you. You mentioned earlier that you, because you had been through some feasibility studies, that there was a little bit of kind of a, um, I don't know if it would be a cultural pushback or there was maybe a feeling that we've been there, we've done that. We're not sure we need to do this again. So what did those conversations look like internally at the Child Abuse Network? And what were the metrics or ideas or pieces of information that um, that really um, turned the tide, uh, changed the conversation? Um, and please don't worry about your precious poodle jumping up into your camera because I, I have this rescue who was a poodle and I thought he'd be like fancy and well-mannered and, you know, <laughs> pants through town and I ended up with like an urban farm dog. He loves to dig up my rose bushes and hop on my lap. And so I apologize. I feel oh, like no worries. That, um, the the older um, attorney whose kids or grandkids changed the Facebook or the Zoom screen to like the cat and he was in court, didn't know how to change it. That's what I feel like today. So apologies for Duke. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, we did have some feedback from a funder um, right out of the gate, like don't do another feasibility study. And this is a funder I adore. I mean, to this day, I stay connected with her um, because I just think she's incredible. And I mean, everything she says to me I is weighted in gold. So I was really concerned about that and, you know, took it to our consultant um, who urged us to do a small scale one. And so I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. And candidly, I didn't know really about a feasibility study. I'd never been through a capital campaign. It was like not even on my radar, I got kind of thrown into the position and um, thrown into just every, like, you know, a, a moving vehicle. And so 
um, when we talked about it, we discovered that because Ken had been through so much transition over the years, um, you know, I was a new leader within the organization um, that it really did warrant having a, kind of a, a peek under the lid at least. And so we did. And I mean, obviously it's it's an expense, but the way I saw it, and I might not have seen it this way on the front end, but on the back end, the way I saw it was that you're going to get value from it no matter what. And the value might be, this is a terrible idea. Don't waste your time and your money because your your time you know, is pretty valuable. And I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been for the funders, the community members, the board, the staff at the organization going through all of those attempts and never getting the bird in the air. And so uh, the information we got back was was really, really quite helpful. And and it was good. It was it was positive about the staff. It was positive about our shift because we had to make a monumental shift from programming that was designed around prosecuting bad guys to a system that's about supporting children and families to really addressing their trauma. I mean, it was a massive shift. And this community has always been very supportive of CAN and um, even the little neighborhood that we're kind of located within. The neighbors love us and we've lived very peacefully and quietly there for a long time. So even getting feedback like that from them, that they were excited to see something happening on the campus and change and growth. I mean, that was all really good. So it's been very value added for us. Does that, I don't know if I answered that correctly, but. Yeah, well, the only follow-up that I would have for you is, was there a point in your conversations with the board where you felt the tenor kind of start to change? Because initially they were not so about it and then they eventually got there with you. What created that change? Yeah, that's a a great question. And also you had asked about the metrics and for us, the metrics were weird. The (laughs) metrics for us, I think was more like relationships. And, and where, like, where that, where those had improved. And um, I, I think that was interesting to get kind of that feedback as well. But um, for the board, it was interesting. We have, we have a board that has been intimately involved. I mean, how do you not get passionate about helping kids who have been abused? Like one of the most vulnerable populations, if not the most vulnerable population. And so for us, uh, they are a really highly skilled team of professionals, many of them in like the finance world and accounting. And so they're exceptionally fiscally responsible. And so every penny is guarded. And it, it's it's kind of like what what's the ROI from this? How do we how do we know? And so um it took some took some consideration, it took some time to really present to them what that ROI would be. And on the, on the other end of it, when we came out the other side, I think they were all very, very grateful for the feedback. I mean, we've continued to receive really great responses from our board um, and from others who participated in the feasibility study um, about the process. Um, So it it was a good, it was a good choice for us. So I'm going to be a bit obtuse and and maybe address the elephant in the room that maybe some of uh, the the audience is thinking. But having gone through so many feasibility studies and and 
having a very fiscally responsible board, feasibility studies are expensive. And before you know that there's going to be a payoff, you kind of talked a little bit how you sort of justified that expense in ROI. But um, could you could you maybe talk about um, some of the costs of some of those feasibility studies or some of the the more fiscally responsible board members who did not feel like spending that money was justified and and how you approach that? Because I think that's the hardest part of undertaking it is is saying, hey, we already need money and now we have to spend more. I mean, for for us, it was um, really kind of sitting down and having that discussion with those board members directly and just kind of putting everything on the table. And like I said before, you get to the end of your feasibility study and all of the feedback is like danger, <laughs> like don't do it. Danger, Will Robinson. Yeah, danger, Will Robinson. I was going to say that, and I was like, oh, these these people might not know what that means. But I got it. I'm a millennial. <laughs> I, still, I still get it. We've heard it, right? <laughs> so um, anyway, so the feedback we got was, yes, proceed. And yes, you have support. I mean, I had just gotten to the organization um, not long before we really kind of launched this capital campaign. And while I had existing relationships with many of these funders from my previous organization, I wasn't doing a capital campaign. I was kind of in this like sweet spot where it's like, I didn't have to be in front of the funders all the time because A, I wasn't in trouble and B, I wasn't doing a capital campaign. And so getting to develop these relationships with, um, you know, funders outside of a normal operations standpoint was different. And they were so generous with their time and their sharing and they are a wealth of information. So we were just looking at from the internal side, from the board member side, and we needed that external perspective. And honestly, it got us additional sources of funding that we didn't realize were out there. It had us learn who's going to be our lead. Um, it had us it had us know like all of these pieces. So it was almost like the fundraising was done by the time we got to the fundraising. I mean, once the first domino fell, they all followed suit. And it was so lovely because we could go to the funders and give them exactly what they were looking for. We knew we weren't wasting their time. Um, and so our capital campaign went with like lightning speed. Yeah, that was it. That was and actually the board and the board members. Once they, I was like, just, just please just trust fall with me. And once they did, <laughs> it was great. Well, I think that's really critical that that trust piece with the board when you're ha- especially when you're having difficult financial conversations because this is one of the most expensive things that a nonprofit will invest in um, at any point, whether you do the feasibility study or not. If you bring on a consultant to help with a capital campaign, at some point there's going to be expense associated with that. So let's switch gears a little bit now. So. Um, you have picked a path. Either you are going to do a feasibility study or you are not going to do a feasibility study. Let's walk the people through what the next step looks like. So what were the tools that you originally used either on your own or with your consultants? And what were some of those early data points, pieces of information, conversations, what did the very beginning of that process look like? And I am going to go to Margaret. We're going to switch it up this time. Let's start with you, Margaret. So we, 
you know, our, our need was to serve more kids. Um, so we kept looking at how many kids do we think we can serve? Um, at the time, the public schools were saying that there were about 8,000 children experiencing homelessness within our transportation area. So um, where's our expertise? Um, our expertise is in elementary. So middle school was a consideration for us at the time, but was something that we weren't sure if we were going to serve middle school. And we knew we wanted to serve younger kids because when you look at um, homelessness nationally, you are most likely to be homeless in your entire lifetime before the age of one. So wanting to make sure that we went down in age um, and again, serve more whole families. So um, I think that, you know, we, we really needed to take a, a look at that and, and see where we needed to fall. Um, so that was, that was, that was a real, um, piece of data that we, that made us, um, make the decision. So what did a school need? Uh, we'd been around again for 25 years. Um, now there's only three of us in the country that are doing what we do wow. that we know of. So one in California, so we made a visit to them. Um, and then one came and visited us for about a week and spent a lot of time with us and then went back and opened their own school. So what were they doing well that we needed to be doing? What did the spaces look like? Um, we looked at a number of um, other pieces of property that we could maybe um, renovate or do we just need to build our own school and what locations are there available for something like that? So we ended up in a kind of a, a great little area here that has multiple service providers all in the same space, um, which made it a, an easier decision. And um, we were going to get everything that we wanted um, without um, jeopardizing um, you know, what the kids needed it, by, by building our own school and making sure all the safety precautions were in place. We keep a confidential location because we serve so many kids living in domestic violence situations. So um, that was another um, huge factor for us is where, where are we going to build this space? So um, those are the things that we were thinking about. So those are really interesting. So I, um, I want to point out there that, so we would call that uh, what the initial work that you were doing around finding out what other similar organizations were doing, uh, a field scan. Yes. So your initial work included a field scan of both um, what was happening outside of the organization, but it also sounds like you were concerned both um, for obviously the confidentiality, but also mm -hmm. where partners and services were already located so that you right. could be a part of that ecosystem. Right. That's, that's really interesting. Um, Jonathan, did you have a follow up to that? Yeah, I did. So I wanted to know a little bit more of like the mechanics. So you mm -hmm. had these data points, you did your field scan, you know, you want to start talking to donors. How, how did you start <laughs> reaching out to them? Are you just making cold calls? Like how many are responding to you? You know, like how did that actually go? Yeah. So I think the first key to us for us was um, our campaign chair. So finding the right person with the right um, heft to their name, right? And who was going to work hard and um, who was committed to what we were doing. And it took us about three months to convince that person to say yes. Um, but once they said yes, I mean, the next week I had a meeting. So it was... Um, it was really working with the architects who we'd been working with for a while to get get something together. So we made some materials that um, had our, our need statement, what we thought that was the budget and kind of a, a first guess at that. And then we went and did our first ask and um, 
they gave us a half million dollars. So um, that first ask went really well um, from that meeting. And then from there, we had the confidence um, to change what we needed to change um, and go forward with a new kind of marketing piece. Now, I will say um, one of my biggest pieces of advice is to not print 50 million books that are already (laughs) (laughs) printed because it will change as you go. Um, So we had a piece that we could print on demand um, and it still looked nice, had great paper to it, great pictures, um, but that we could use our own in-house printer. Um, We had a a design template, if you will. Um, We were able to drop new pieces in as we needed to um, and just change along the way because our, um, you know, one of the biggest things that we heard was, your target goal is too big. That's what we heard from the feasibility study. Um, and we knew um, from the feasibility study what ranges our donors were looking at giving within. So we wanted to target those donors first um, to get that base already set. Um, so if that answers that more directly, yeah. It does. Absolutely. And a couple interesting things I want to point out. So I love that you started off with swagger as like the first thing that you did. That is a great way to start a (laughs) campaign, I think. Yeah. Um, But also on the range. So um, one of the things that that we like to see in the feasibility study at Ride On is at least 60% of that initial goal identified in the feasibility study. Do you remember what the number was for you, the percentage of your goal that was identified in the feasibility study? Mm, No, I don't off the top of my head. Um, And I will say that gifts came in larger. Um, Gifts came in pretty well on target or a little bit more than um, what they identified. So I don't think anybody really came in less than what they had told them. Because what do they have to lose in talking to a consultant, right? I mean, they don't have, they can say whatever they want um, and they can be really honest when, because they're not going to hurt my feelings because I'm not there. So that, that I think was one of the greatest things that we got was a really honest look at here's the range that I would be willing to give. But then when you come to the table, having answered all of their questions with the right data points, again, with all the information that they want to hear, it made them more confident and gifts went up. Right. That's awesome. All right, I'm going to switch now. We're going to jump back over to Janice. So Janice, so you have picked a path. You let one of one of the many capital campaigns that you have spinning. You know you're likely not going to do a feasibility study, but we know from what you've described that you are still using tools. There's still a lot of information you're collecting. What are some of the go-to tools, resources, or questions or methodologies that you're using in the community to get ready for those first asks? And what do those first asks look like? Yeah, uh, for sure. So again, we've kind of done our own homework that has led us to to know that this is feasible in the community that we're coming to, right? So with that, I mean, we started in our Sioux Falls location hiring our first consultant. We had not done that before. We had literally cold card called boots on the ground in the communities of Longmont and St. Louis and bootstrapped it, did it on our own. Um, Not being in those markets physically made that a challenge. So Sioux Falls came to us um, when they're mayor decided, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to do this, but you need to work with this capital campaign consultant. So that was the first city where we decided, let this is a good approach. They know the landscape of that community. Let's work directly with them. So um, that was our fastest fundraised community we'd gone to to date. So 
we learned something from that and we knew maybe that's an approach we should take in every community that we go into. It will help us expedite the process. They'll help get us in front of the right donors. They know how to approach the donors in those communities. So that's now the process that we take into going to new communities. So um, Oklahoma City and Milwaukee, same approach right now. We're going to start with that capital or that consultant firm. They're going to help us identify the right donors to get in front of. And now from there, without a feasibility study, our main goal is to get in front of donors, right? Uh, VCP, the work that we do, we're a little bit unique in the nonprofit space where our our ask to gift ratio is a little bit higher. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to the work that we do being very unique and needed in that community. A lot of times you're looking at- I want to yeah. jump in right there because what you said was unique mm-hmm. and I want clarity on that for our yep. listeners. Um, when you said your get, what was it that you just said? How did you phrase it? Your the gift, gift to-, to- The gift to ask ratio is different. Talk so, to us about what that means. Yeah, typically what you see is that every three to four donors you ask, you'll get one gift, right? We're closer to a two to one ratio. So we like to get in front of those donors and get in front of them early and ask, right? So that that kind of pushes us. We, we know that it's going to speak to, uh, you know, the audience a little bit differently. Um, and so we have a pretty good rate of return on the asks that we put out there. So honestly, how we do that it's education and awareness. So first we're looking at either ourselves to make an initial um, cold call, if you will, or email to just say, hey, here's an organization that's looking to come to your community. What do you think about it? Um, Are you interested in meeting with VCP? And that may be a virtual meeting where we hop on a Zoom or a Teams call just to share the mission of what we're trying to do, where we're trying to do it in that community, just to get them involved and make them aware that we're coming there. So it's we're not usually making an ask in those first initial calls, right? We're just sharing our mission, making sure you know we're coming there so it's not a big surprise that this new organization based out of Kansas City is coming to our community telling us how to fix our problems, right? We're really just trying to say, here's what we know and here's how we're going to do it in your community. So we started with an awareness conversation. Um, from there, we do lots of trips, right? We Our team's up there regularly, um, so we're getting a significant amount of in-person meetings. Um, a lot of times our consultant will help us identify those folks and help us get in front of them. So when when we come, you know, for instance, next week we're going to Milwaukee, um, and in a three-day window, we'll probably meet with about 30 to 35 people um, in that window of time. Uh, and we'll have some asks go out there. Some of them will be asked to serve on the Capital Campaign Committee. Um, And, you know, from there, once we're ready to go with that public phase, we'll launch that capital campaign committee, but we provide them with the tools that they need to be successful. So one thing I love about the work that we get to do, because we are building something from ground up, right? Um, We're not renovating or rehabbing a space. Um, You're really going to be able to see physically and tangibly what your dollars are going to do. So as we've mentioned, the quiet phase and seed funding, that is the hardest part of my job in fundraising is getting people to give money to something they can't see or slap their name on, right? Um, but once we turn it over to that public phase, we'll provide those print materials. And back to what Margaret was saying, like, we have learned, do not overprint your materials <laughs> because they <laughs> will change um, often. And so when we provide them with like a capital campaign booklet, We've already done our, you know, design work and layout of what the project's going to look like in that community. So, you know, in Oklahoma City, we're building 35 homes. We will put a sponsorship on every single home. So we'll say for $60,000, you know, your company or your family or you as an individual can sponsor a house and that will forever be your house. So when you come to the village to volunteer or to tour, you will be able to see your house. You will probably be able to paint that house. 
you'll be able to refurnish it. Um, you know, everything that goes in there is brand new for our veterans. When they move out into their permanent housing, they can take everything from the refrigerator to the bed with them. So we will refurnish it brand new for each veteran that moves in there. So there's so many opportunities to tangibly sponsor the community center, every room, every building, every flagpole will slap a name on. So that is that makes it easy for our capital campaign committee and us to go out and make those asks. And we'll typically equate the dollar ranges back to that full picture capital campaign goal that we're trying to hit. We know the budget that we've set for it. Um, so that's the amount of money that we're breaking down at each sponsorship level for each space on that village. And that really helps set us up for success. And then we really, truly turn it over to that capital campaign committee um, and our chair to do a lot of the legwork. We're always more than happy to get in front of those donors if they just make the introduction. Like I said, we're happy to tell the story and help make that official act. But those those local folks are the ones that are going to help us get in front of the right people. Um, so the tool is really that digital marketing material that shows what sponsorship levels are available, what you're going to get for that sponsorship level. We love digital. I think a lot of our donors like having it digital, and that makes it easier for us to uh, make the changes that happen quite quite regularly. Um, and then from there, it just becomes a donor cycle and relationship building, right? So um, whether it's the individuals on the ground there or once we hire staff there locally, um, maintaining the relationship with them, we've got some internal tools that we use for that. Um, Virtuous is one of the platforms that we use for donor relationship. Um, we have a Monday board where we track all of the sponsorship information as well. So those are some of our internal tools. But, um, you know, we really... We just like to get in front of people and make sure we're having those conversations and, and keep them going and figure out what they want. What are they looking for when they're working with VCP? A lot of times the corporations we work with, of course, they want to financially give to this, but they want more than that. Like a true partnership that we're seeing nowadays, I'm sure a lot of you guys see too, is they don't just want to slap money on something and put their name on it, right? They want to be a part of fixing that problem. They want to volunteer their time. Um, they want to give financially. They want to get their veterans organizations groups involved or other BRG, ERG groups want to be engaged and involved and be a long-term partner. And a lot of times in-kind is huge with what we do. Oh, um, like Pella, Pella Windows, right? They're one of our incredible uh, groups in Oklahoma City. Um, they're, you know, they provide windows for all of our projects and that offset the cost of our budget significantly. So the more folks that are able to give in kind, that is just as valuable as any dollar gifts that we're going to get as well. Absolutely. That's awesome. So Maura, I'm going to jump to you now and we're going to move this on forward into the next piece because there are a couple more things I want to touch on today before we jump off. So you have decided you're going to do a feasibility study. It's the Child Abuse Network. You've launched it. You've gone through it. You've gone through all the steps. You've got all the buy-in. you got the information. Share with us at the close of that feasibility study and that time between feasibility study and private phase, what were the major takeaways? What were the things that you learned that you felt like were the most valuable from the feasibility study? And conversely, were there still things that you felt like you didn't know even after the end of the feasibility study? You don't know what you don't know, do you? <laughs> um, I would not, if I had just been doing the feasibility study myself, I would not have known maybe 5% of what I learned from the feasibility study. There's a lot of questions you have and a lot of assumptions you make because who knows your organization better than you know your team? And 
you get blinders on because of that. And for me, you know, I've worked in this field 20 years now. And so I probably know a lot about this, but not about capital campaigns, feasibility studies, not about what our donors want to see, what our funders want to see. Um, for us, when we wrapped it up in that um, calm before the storm, um, which thanks for putting that cute um, can uh, groundbreaking picture up there. I, that's one of my favorite pictures. So awesome. like, the look on Michelle Hardesty's face of just like exuberance makes me so happy. <laughs> Anyways, um, it, it helped us understand, you know, here's here's foundations that would like to support you that are um, that maybe we hadn't approached before that are that are a good match for. Uh, so it's like you get more than just your bird's eye view of what you do. You get an, an external partner who is kind of a neutral party. And so what Margaret was saying about they don't they're not going to care. They'll tell that consultant whatever they want to. I mean, that was crucial and not just because they would tell them, but because it it wasn't us there. It wasn't going to be like watered down or sugar coated. And that feedback was critical for us. So one of the big things for us, the first million dollars we had towards our campaign was actually came from selling part of our property. And we're going to have a, a, a community partner located on site with us. And so we got feedback about that, which was huge. So as far as things I don't know if we knew, I guess maybe I'm not there yet, but so far, maybe, maybe that, um, my therapy dog's not so therapy right. dog. Duke, Duke is, is uh, leaning into it for sure. Man. <laughs> Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. So uh, kind of the same question to Margaret. Margaret alluded to the committee chair being so important to kind of reaching out to those donors and, and kind of starting to build, especially those newer relationships. Um, Janice, it sounds like VCP, they are cold call experts um, and are totally willing to jump in there and go do that. What was this experience like at CAN? Would you say it was the consultant, the committee chair, or you just picking up the phone and saying, hey, this is me. Can we talk? Um, when it comes to reaching out to those kind of newer donors. I think it was a group effort, quite honestly. Um, I'm the kind of person where, you know, I I do this work because it's something that I'm very passionate about. I mean, it's, it is in my blood and I love the population. I love the mission of the organization. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but I don't know this stuff. So I needed to partner with somebody who did that could tell me like, this is, this is the next step that we do. Because once I get in there, I can do that piece. But, um, you know, my, my thing is social work. It's, it's working with kids and families. And so having a real thought partner in this process was what would make it successful. <laughs> Sweet Duke. Sweet Duke in the background. Um, Margaret, I'm going to jump over to you. So do um, you mentioned that um, the feasibility did a pretty good job of accurately um, determining what the gifts were going to look like. The feasibility study maybe said you were a bit under, but people came in over. Did you feel like there were any surprises, any pieces of information that you learned from the feasibility study that you weren't expecting to see? Ooh. Um, you know, I think that um, 
I think that just the the leadership that we needed, uh, the people that we needed at the table. So um, I think that it really solidified for us that we needed a really strong, like I said, chair. Um, and and then we needed to have some people surrounding that person um, to help do a lot of the work. Um, so I think, I mean, I think we we thought that going in. Um, and then I think that the time frame for me um, was a little bit, they, they recommended 36 months for us to, um, do the fund- fundraising campaign. We did it in 18, which was a whole lot better. Um, but yeah. I, I just, it was like, wow, that's going to take a really long time. Um, and it just, it was like, okay, we really need to settle in for the long haul with this. Um, so I think that the timing, um, and the phases that they, they recommended a couple of phases, um, and we moved pretty fast through them, but I think that for me, the biggest shock was how long they thought it would take us. Well, follow up on that. So you mentioned earlier that the gifts came in a little bit larger than was originally expected. What do you think were the primary factors in the fact that you moved through in half the time as was originally uh, kind of um, estimated? Um, I think it had to do with um, the passion and the fire behind um, the chair. And um, yeah. and I, I met her like at every pace. So um, I really had to learn what was her, <laughs> what were her hours of the day and work within that. Um, and learn what she needed from me and um, to get things really quickly um, and turn around answers to questions. So I think when you when when you can do that um, and you've got a, a chair that's committed to getting it done as quickly as possible, it, it all moved along really, really fast in the long in the grand scheme of things. That's, that's awesome. So I think some of what we've heard from you, Margaret, and some of what we've heard echoed elsewhere is um, we're hearing this, like, don't print too much (laughs) and make sure you have the right chair. Uh, This kind of, you know, maybe secrets to success that maybe folks aren't really thinking through. Cause I think we, we focus in on the money part a lot when it comes to capital campaigns. And there are so many um, uh, alternative factors that uh, impact the success of your campaign. I think it's a pretty incredible statement to say that the passion and expertise of your chair allowed you to slice your capital campaign timeline in half. That's amazing. That's a really powerful statement. Yeah. And I think it helped. I mean, again, this was one of the best relationship building tools that we could have ever done. Um, It helped us to, again, sustain the operating budget that we have now because of the relationships that we built. And it helped people to think about us, not as a tiny little school that's serving, you know, at the time that I started, they were serving 38 kids. Now we've got 115, 120 kids um, right here, right now. And with the capacity to serve so many more. Um, um, So I think it, it, it broadens people's views when you're talking about something of this magnitude and allows people to to really join in at a deeper level with your organization. Got about eight minutes left, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time today. So, um, the, I do have a couple more questions. Um, I'm going to go over to Janice really quickly. So, in the end, um, because you have multiple capital campaigns that you um, are have finished and are still running, so in the end, do you feel like the we'll call it the 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 base level decision to not do feasibility studies in various markets. Do you feel like it is the best approach for veterans community project? Um, or do you feel like there will be 
opportunity in the future? Do you foresee there being markets in the future where that strategy changes or is altered? Um, I think for VCP, it it is the right decision, um, at least at this current state, to to not approach with it. Um, As much as I want to say the money and the time plays a factor in it, that is a part of it. Um, I really think our team has done a fantastic job beforehand, uh, before making the decision to go to each market or community, if you will, um, to, to help us decide that we don't need the feasibility study. That could change in the future. But if I was to give advice to anybody listening as to whether or not to do one, I wouldn't say the best approach is always to say, no, don't do it because it costs money and it takes time. That would not be my advice. That's that's where we sit as an organization. Um, I would say don't let the cost and time of a feasibility study um, to detour you from actually going through the process. And I know that sounds funny coming from someone that doesn't currently use one. Um, but I think what you'll find, and I think what maybe Margaret and Maura have already stated, is you do get some fantastic relationships built that will turn into potential donors for you when you do the feasibility study. Um, And a lot of times they turn around and pay for themselves, I think. So don't let it scare you that the cost is affiliated with it. Um, The reason that we have a go to a consultant model in the new expansion sites that we go to is because they do cost money and it's not usually very cheap but we do find that they pay for themselves very quickly. And so I would just, my advice would be don't let that scare you off from determining whether or not you're going to do a feasibility study for the work that you're doing. I truly think it depends on what you're trying to do, how you're trying to do it. Um, And I will absolutely, you know, throw myself out there if you are questioning whether or not to do a feasibility study and you want my perspective on it, I am more than happy to have a conversation um, with anyone that would like to hear kind of that side of it, as well as, you know, walk through if maybe it is a better idea for you to go through it versus not go through it coming from a perspective of we don't do them. So um, happy to share my contact information, however that works to the audience. If if you just want to walk through that conversation or path of, is this right for me and us as an organization? So just thought I'd throw that out there. I don't even know if I fully answered your question there, Lindsay, but um, you know, I tried. <laughs> it, did, it sounded, it, I forgot my question. I'm so excited that you offered your, to talk to everybody that, you know, thank yes. you. <laughs> yes. yeah, I, I do want to have that conversation. Can Nick Collison also be on that? Yeah. Great. Oh my gosh. Great. Everybody <laughs> asks that. Can I get an autograph thing from Nick? I'm like Mr. Thunder himself. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mara, I have one last question for you today. One of the things I can't believe we have not actually discussed today. Um, do you feel like your feasibility study um, did a good job, an accurate job of identifying how much money that you were actually going to raise um, and how did your campaign end? This is a leading question. I know the answer to this and you are muted, friend. Hi. Okay. So yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> I think ours ultimately, um, I did 70 to 80% of the funding for the um, the campaign, which was huge. Um, I think probably my biggest surprise going into it, because initially I was like, no, we don't need to do a feasibility study. Or, uh, yeah, because this funder had told me that. and you know, like I said, her word was gold to me and I don't disagree with her perspective. Um, so dude, I found a jar of peanut butter. So yeah, you can, that's a tip. 
bribery your capital campaign too. But we had a few interesting variables. Like we did all of this during a capital campaign. So I think in some ways, or I'm sorry, during a pandemic, I love that I just mixed those two words up. They felt the same. <laughs> um, but we were able to do a lot of the, the virtual, the Zoom thing. And so initially even our board was like, whoa, there's a pandemic coming. And we we need to like put the brakes on this. And we kind of found out, no, we don't. This is a great time. It also happened during the middle of a landmark Supreme Court ruling that impacted the way we delivered services. And um, and so we were able to get feedback on that. And so I guess the the big thing for me, the big takeaway for me was that a feasibility study is about more than just your capital campaign, because we heard about what people thought of our reputation, um, affinity for the leadership or for the campaign chair. Um we were able to tweak our case for support based on feedback that we got from that. And I mean, I continue to get amazing feedback from funders and community members about our case for support and how amazing it was. And I think in large part, that was because of the feasibility study. Um, And we didn't waste a ton of money printing. (laughs) It keeps coming back to that. I love it. Um, So the study um, identified 70, 80%. Where did you actually... Uh, land. Oh my gosh. I can't even remember. I want to say it was at like 113% maybe, or maybe even higher. All the snaps. Um, I know so many snaps and peanut butter for everyone. (laughs) Um, So that was really cool because, you know, obviously we needed that extra money, but like everybody else has said, it pays for itself, but we even were able to build it into the overall cost for the capital campaign. So, um, you know, it's not borrowing from one account to, to pay for the other, but it it did, it was, it was worth it and more. And the community responded in such a great way. Well, I want to thank all three of you today for joining us. I think we've gotten some really excellent information on the types of organizations that could benefit from a feasibility study and where a feasibility study might not be needed. Um, So thank you all, Margaret, Mara, Janice, so much for your insights today. Janice, thank you for um, volunteering yourself and Nick Collison. Very generous of you. Um, I uh, uh, thank everybody who joined us today. Again, this uh, is going to be available um, starting in April as a podcast. So uh, we're excited um, to bring that along as well. Um, we got some messages in the comments. Thank you so much, uh, Donna, for joining us today. Jonathan, final word. Yeah. Hey, if you enjoyed this, the fun doesn't have to stop here. On May 17th, we have our next masterclass, 10 Common Grant Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Um, We know the mistakes. We loathe the mistakes. We do our best to avoid them. We've got the 10 most common mistakes straight from the mouths of foundations and the people who donate. So um, if that is something that interests you and you want to avoid those mistakes, join us on May 17th or listen to that podcast after it gets posted. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Duke, the rescue poodle, for joining us today as well. Margaret, Mara, Janice, thank you. Everybody have a great rest of your day, and we will see you again on the next Masterclass. Thank you. Bye.